0: Good morning, Grace. So I'm curious by a show of hands, how many of you were planning on coming to first service but now you are here in second service? Anybody? A few of you. How many of you would normally come to first service but you plan not to because uh, you didn't want to be tired this morning? Any of you do that? This is consistently one of my least favorite days of the year. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, it's good to be here uh, that we might sit under the word together. I'm grateful for this opportunity uh, to gather together as a faith family in this way this morning. Uh, we have a lot to dive into, so I wanna, want us to go ahead and open up our Bibles. This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18-25. through 25. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. 1 Peter uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Let's read this together. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As I've been thinking about this passage, I've been struck by the idea that for some time we have lived in a culture that is largely willing to adopt certain christian principles and values maybe not completely but at least in part we live in a culture where many are willing to actually identify themselves as christians to claim the na- um, claim the name of christ follower uh, even if they're unwilling to submit to the lord as or to christ as lord I come from the South, being from Alabama, the Bible Belt. This sort of thing is everywhere. It's prevalent. People uh, are are cultural Christians oftentimes. They claim to be Christ followers, even if that's entirely not the case. I, I think that we can easily fall into the trap of loving the palatable aspects of Christianity, the easy to take down aspects of Christianity, you know, Christianity is about, about love, it's about being kind, it's about adopting certain moral principles like the golden rule, it's, it's about uh, providing a good place for our children to grow up or a good social gathering on Sunday. And these things can certainly be true, but Christianity is so much more than these things. In fact, a lot of Christianity is very difficult to take down. There are certainly unpalatable aspects of Christianity. And so we come to a passage like our passage this morning, and we are hit in the chest with it. We are punched in the gut with this passage. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25 is one of those passages that really confronts us that to be in Christ means that, we, that everything is changed, being in Christ changes everything, it changes who we are, how we think, what we do. It affects every single aspect of our life. And so, in our passage in 1 Peter, and, and Peter's been doing this in this entire book, he's laying bare the countercultural and radical nature of Christianity. This is something so far beyond what our culture often thinks Christianity is or is willing to accept about Christianity. Yet, Peter wants to lay this bare for us. To be a Christian is to be an alien and an exile. To be a Christian is to be a stranger in a foreign land. And so Peter has beautifully and wonderfully made this clear for us over the past few chapters. He's laid out our identity, telling us who we are, and now he wants to help us to understand what that means practically. He wants us to know what does it mean for you to be an alien and an exile? What does it mean for you to be a stranger in a foreign land? Here's where he gets to to practicality. This is building upon last week's, uh, our time spent in the word last week. Last week we saw how we're to relate to governing authorities. Here Peter wants to deal practically with how we deal with one another in relationships. How do we deal practically as aliens and exiles? Verse, Verse 18 tells us. Verse 18, servants be subject. There's a command here be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust and so this is the central thrust of our passage this is the command of our passage this is what this is all about this morning servants submit yourself to unjust masters so the question becomes well who are we talking to here who's in view here servants servants and the word really here is slaves we're talking about slaves Um, many think that the word servant here was used for a variety of reasons maybe this is a little bit easier to take down maybe uh, the word slave has such negative connotations for us that that we just don't want to put it in here and miss the point it's true that when we think of slavery uh it can, it can really mess with our minds. And it's true that that when we talk about slavery in the scriptures, we're talking about something that is actually different from the slavery that we tend to think of as 21st century Americans. The slavery that's in view here in Peter is, is different. It's, it's a slavery that's not based on race or sex or age. It's, it's usually a result of people being uh, being a a prisoner of war or it's a result of people selling themselves into slavery. And often these slaves in Peter's context had an incredible amount of dignity. They had privilege even. Uh, They could hold powerful and prestigious positions within the community. They were respected. They could purchase their freedom. There were aspects of what it meant to be a slave in Peter's context that are very different than what we think of. Nevertheless, we don't want to blunt this too much because these are, in fact, slaves. They are not freed men. And so we, we can read about what slaves looked like in this context. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we see that they actually lack dignity. Sometimes they were thought of uh, as not really much more than a tool. In fact, the only thing that separated them from a tool and an animal was that they could speak. And so we're dealing with some difficult subject matter here and it could be jarring for us as 21st century christians to hear this word slave to have the topic of slavery be brought up and then not see peter just outright condemn slavery why in the world would peter not come and, and hit this unjust thing uh head on well we have to recognize here that peter's peter's goal is not to uh upturn the evil that exists within society He's not seeking to, to strike a blow necessarily to um, the unfortunate realities of sin being in our world. Rather rather, Peter is seeking to instruct. He's seeking to instruct aliens and exiles. He's seeking to instruct Christians where they are. Where were many of the Christians that Peter was writing to? Well, they were slaves. They were servants. And so Peter wants to meet them where they are and he wants to instruct them on how to live as aliens in exiles, how to live as strangers in a foreign land. As servants, this is what you do. And so what does Peter tell them to do? How does he instruct? How does he command servants or slaves here in 1 Peter? They are to submit to their masters, even the unjust ones. This is a hard command Peter is not unaware of the difficulty of this command. He doesn't think this is no big deal. He understands that a real sorrow can come along with this. And so nevertheless, even though a real sorrow can come as a result of submitting to unjust masters, Peter tells Christians that they are to respond to this sort of unjust suffering without bitterness and without returning evil for evil. They're to respond not by seeking revenge, but by seeking the good of their unjust masters. They're to treat them with all respect. Why does this matter for us? As we sit here at grace in this room right now, why does this matter for us? We may not be literal slaves or servants, but we are, if we are in Christ, slaves of Christ. This passage is for us. Also, we are people who have legitimate authorities in our lives. We have bosses, husbands, friends, children, teachers, coworkers. the list goes on and on. People who actually have some amount of authority and can speak into our lives. Peter wants to speak into these relationships this morning. That's what we're talking about is these various relationships. And how do we as aliens and exiles live in this world? We recognize these various authorities and we submit ourselves in respect or honor to the glory of God. We do this even when these authorities are unjust. We return evil with good. That's what this passage is about. Peter is instructing us, the people of God to return evil with good. When you find your boss, your husband, your friend, your coworker, your parent, your teacher, when they commit evil against you, you are to return that evil with good. So this morning I have three main points and these three three main points are gonna be building upon this central thrust. And, And these points I hope that it comes across and in the background of all of these that God is gracious. In these points, I think we see God's sovereign grace. He is not unkind to demand so much of us. Rather, he is, as he always is, merciful and gracious and kind and loving and patient. And so we'll have three points. The first two points are really gonna deal with the why. Why would we submit in this way? Why would we return evil with good? And the last point, will deal with how. How do we actually do this? So we'll start with our first point. Why do we do this? As Christians, we return evil with good for this pleases God. For this pleases God. I think we see this in verses 18 through 20. So look there with me. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For, for here, uh, this tells us why, it denotes purpose. For, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This tells us how we do it. We, We don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Rather, we are mindful of God. We are conscious of God. We do this in the power of God, thinking of God. We're not in this on our own. We're not just trying hard here. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this passage begins, once again, uh, verse 19 by telling us for why. Why would you submit yourselves to unjust masters? Why would you return evil with good? Well, because this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. Verse 20 repeats this idea. This is a gracious thing that we suffer for doing good rather than to suffer because we deserve it. And so here we're getting repetition, Peter's drawing our attention to a certain idea. He's focusing us in on this idea that we are to suffer because it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why do we return evil with good? Because it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's why. Well, the question is, what does that mean? That could be a bit of a tricky statement. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What does that mean? When Peter says this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, he's getting at the idea of credit. Uh, to act faithfully, to be mindful of God and to submit ourselves to unjust masters, this is a credit worthy thing. And that's not to say that this is something that earns our way before God. It earns our salvation, our status. Rather, when we submit ourselves in this faithful way, this is a thing that pleases God. It pleases God. It is a commendable thing before God. It is a thankworthy thing before God. God loves this. When we suffer for doing good, when we submit ourselves to unjust masters, when we return evil with good, God sees this and he loves it and he is blessed by it and he is honored by it. He is worshiped in these things. And so Peter's telling us what does it mean to be an alien and an exile? Even in the face of seemingly uh, seemingly impossible command, and I hope I hope you realize that for many, this does seem impossible. Some of us may hear this and may think, well, I could do that. That that doesn't seem all that big. But for those who are in the midst of this sort of suffering, this is a weight that hangs heavy. For many of us, this might seem absolutely uh, incomprehensible. This cannot be done. Nevertheless, Peter says, what does it mean to be a Christian in light of this sort of command? It means to seek the fame of the Father, To seek the smile of the Father over our self preservation, over our comfort, even. It means to care about things like the glory of God and the the pleasure of God more than the things of this world. Why do we do this? Why do we submit ourselves to such a potentially demeaning and difficult thing? Because God loves it. That's why. And make no mistake. God loves this. He loves it when we submit ourselves in this way, when we return evil with good, but he sees it and it is commendable in his sight. Last weekend, our high school students went to the mountains. Uh, We did our annual spring retreat and part of that spring retreat is spending a lot of time in scripture. And so for this particular trip, we uh, looked at the end of the Bible. We wanted to look forward and see the culmination of redemption history. And so that took us to Revelation 20. And in Revelation 20 in particular, we looked at the, the final judgment. And it's, it's a striking scene. And so part of what you see there is, is that the dead are gathered before the throne and these books are laid open and the books contain the deeds of the dead. And as we thought about that, it was a sobering thing to recognize that God sees and records our deeds, that every thought, attitude, and action is observed and recorded. And one day it will be laid bare and we will be held accountable. And I've always thought about that and it's a sobering thing for me to wrestle with that. I remember the summer that the last Harry Potter book came out I was working at an AT&T store selling cell phones at the time and I was like many people obsessed with Harry Potter and so I immediately went out and bought this book and immediately poured all my time into trying to finish this as quickly as possible. Well, during that time, I had to unfortunately interrupt my reading to go to work. And at work, it was a night shift. There was nobody in the store, completely empty. So, I went in the back, grabbed my book, and started reading Harry Potter while out on the floor. It was a victimless crime in my mind, and so I got away with it. It was great. I read Harry Potter for a while, went home that night, continued to read Harry Potter. The next day, I came into work, and my manager called me into his office and I walked into his office and the first thing I noticed is over on the uh, over to my side is a screen, a security um, a security um, monitor over here and what I notice is a still frame of me sitting at my desk with my feet propped on my desk like a punk reading Harry Potter and I just my stomach just twists as I see that and he says Jackson I saw you I just hang my head says I know you're balancing a lot right now I know that you're working here and I know you're a student but you can't study while you're out on the floor. <laughs> yes, yes, sir, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir, well, it won't happen again. He said, like, when, when you're at work, I really need you to be committed to, uh, to serving the, uh, the customers and the employees. So, so please, you know, if you need to study, talk to me. We'll, we'll make sure that you have plenty of time to study. Yes, sir, yes, sir, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Even though my manager didn't see that situation perfectly clear, it was sobering to walk in and realize that my sin, my reading about horcruxes and hollows was lived before the face of my manager. My sin was before him. It is an even more sobering reality to realize that my every thought, deed, and action is lived before the face of God, that he sees all of this. There's not a single thing that goes beyond him. There's not a single thing that he's aware of. This has always been a sobering thing. But then, I read a passage like ours this morning. I read a passage like this and I find myself incredibly comforted because just as God sees my sin, just as he sees me uh, being disobedient at my work, God sees the righteous deeds of the saints. And so, When we suffer for doing good, when we submit ourselves to unjust masters, when we return evil with good, God sees this and he is blessed. God sees it when you return the harsh words of your spouse with gentleness and respect. God sees it when you resolve in your heart to be mindful of God and endure the unfair unfair criticism you receive at work from your boss or from a parent or from a teacher. God sees it when you seek to bless those who persecute you and love those who hate you. You might feel as if you were alone in this incredibly difficult uh, circumstance of, of submitting to unjust masters. You might feel as if your actions don't matter, as if this is all hopeless and worthless. But please know that God sees these actions. He sees this fight for faith, this simple obedience, and he is blessed by it. He loves it. These are thankworthy things. These deeds are being recorded. They're not passing away unnoticed. The Lord of hosts, the one who will one day come and vindicate, make all things right, make all things new, he sees these and he is honored by them, he is blessed by them. And they will one day be laid bare. And so Peter here, in light of this very difficult command that he gives, he begins to build his case. Why would we submit to unjust masters? Why would we return evil with good? Because this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because this pleases the Lord. Because Christians are those who live not for their own self-comfort, not for their own self-preservation, but for the smile of the Father, for the fame of the Father. This is why. But... There's more to this case. There's more that Peter wants to build in here. He recognizes this as being so important that he wants to drive his point home. And so there's more. Why else would we submit to unjust masters? Our second point is Christians submit to unjust masters. They return evil with good for this is our identity. For this is our identity. We see this in verse 21. For, once again, For, tells us why, denotes purpose. For, to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Being subject to unjust masters is our calling. Why do we return evil with good? Because that's who we are as Christians. This is our identity as Christ Christ. Followers, exiles and aliens, those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those who are being built up into a spiritual house are people who return evil with good. There's an idea of vocation here. Uh, the, the root of vocation is to call and that's led many to, to say over the years that to return evil with good is the holy vocation of the Christian. This is our job. Do you have a sense that your job is to return evil with good? That your job is to submit to unjust masters? We have a holy vocation. So why is this vocation holy? What is so holy about this vocation? Well, I think we can answer that in a lot of ways, but one really clear thing about this that shows us this is a holy vocation is actually found a little bit earlier in chapter 2. Look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is an evangelistic calling. This holy calling is evangelistic. Why do we submit ourselves to unjust masters and return evil with good? It's so that our, our husbands, our wives, our, our, our employers, our coworkers, our friends, our children, that they might behold Christ, that they might see him as beautiful, as satisfying, that they might see their sin and they might repent, that they might believe in Jesus, that they might be right with God. This is a holy calling. This is a set-apart calling. We do it that many might come to know Christ. I've actually been blessed to see this play out in my own life. Uh, at the beginning of college, I worked at a coffee shop, and in this coffee shop, I worked alongside a girl who was a little bit older than me. And this girl, simply put, hated God. She hated God. She lived in just a blatant anti-Christian lifestyle. She just made it clear that she had nothing to do with God didn't want anything to do and that was just who she was. I uh, worked alongside her and it was just known in this coffee shop that I was a Christian. I wasn't trying to beat people over the head with the Bible but I regularly talked about who I was in Christ. I had shared the gospel with a few people and, and so it was just known. People knew that I was a Christian and over the course of time uh, I worked alongside this girl and I began to notice that she just didn't treat me very well. She just wasn't generally kind to me. And over the course of time, I began to notice that her not treating me well turned into outright disdain. She genuinely did not like me. She would uh, be rude and sarcastic to me. She would ignore me. She would refuse to work alongside me, even though we were supposed to work alongside each other. Um, She would demean me in front of coworkers and customers and, Um, she tried to get me in trouble in various ways it was just it was really strange and the only thing I can conclude was is that she just did not like that I was a Christian I couldn't prove that but it just seemed to be the case and so in my heart I resolved to return this evil with good I sought to love her I sought to be light to her to do my best to to not put any uh, justifiable reason in her mind to treat me this way and to hate Christians and so I just endured for a while. And after about six months of working with this girl, she came to me one day and she said, so you hate me, don't you? And I was like, what? You who've been treating me this way for so long, you think that I hate you? How in the world does that make sense? I didn't say that, but that was what I was thinking. And so I said, well, what have I done to give you that that?" That idea, how in the world do you think? I I don't understand. And she said, Well, Christians hate people like me. And I go, Oh my gosh, no, no, I'm so sorry that you think that. That is not true at all. I'm sorry if Christians have given you that indication in the past. Please know that that is not indicative of who God is, and that is not who Christians are to be. But no, no, not at all. I do not hate you. And we talked about it for a minute, and she goes, and walks off, and doesn't talk to me for two weeks. Treats me the exact same way that she has been. Two weeks later, though, she does come to me, and she asks me a question about the problem of evil, and I am a 19-year-old barista, and I have, I am not qualified to answer that question very well at the time, but I do my best. I blunder through trying to answer her question, trying to be faithful, and she does the same thing. Hmm. Walks off, doesn't talk to me for two weeks. And this became a pattern. Over the course of time, she would come to me every once in a while, sometimes asking theological questions, sometimes just asking why Christians do that or don't do this. And eventually, this gave way to a friendship. And we started talking about things besides the problem of evil. And we started talking about her family and that she had a daughter. And and, and it was just a sweet relationship. And this went on and on for a while. And... After some time, she came to me one day and she said, I need to tell you something. For the past few weeks, I haven't told you this, but I've been going to church with my parents. And last night, I trusted Christ. And I, I had no idea how to take that information in this girl who was once so antagonistic towards Christians who despised me simply because I bear the name Christian, she was now my sister. I saw this work out, this holy vocation lived that others might see the the good deeds of the saints and they might believe in Jesus and honor God on the day of visitation. It's a glorious thing. Our passage, the Bible, it doesn't promise us that when we are poorly treated that if we submit to this and honor and respect those who are treating us in an evil way, that they will automatically become Christians. Nevertheless, this is our holy calling. This is who we are as Christians, And I think because the Lord calls us to this, we can recognize that this is generally a way that he uses his people to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. People legitimately believe in Jesus because of this sort of thing. To respond in light of our holy vocation to unjust suffering will require a paradigm shift for many of us. We are so accustomed to thinking that this life is about comfort, it's about ease, and so we bristle at the idea of being treated unjustly. It feels so natural for us to respond to insensitive bosses with disrespect. It's natural for us to respond to ungrateful and demanding spouses with sharp words. It's natural for us to shun domineering parents. This is who we naturally are. But as Christians, as aliens and exiles, as strangers in a foreign land, we are called to something better, something greater. We have a holy vocation, a set apart vocation. We are not to be the distributors and executors of justice. Rather, we are to submit ourselves to our maker and faithfully endure in all respect that the Lord might use that witness for his glory and to redeem many for his for self. So Peter here tells us why we return evil with good. Why? Because this pleases God, because he loves it. It's a gracious thing in his sight. And why? Because this is who we are. This is our holy calling. This is our holy vocation as Christians. Nevertheless, if we are honest, we recognize this is a hard thing. How in the world do we do this? I could see the why maybe, but how? How do we do this? Well, the answer has everything to do with Christ. Verses 21 through 25, I believe we'll see this. How do, we, how do we return evil with good? We do it by looking to Christ. Read with me in 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In these verses, we see how we do such a hard thing, how we are obedient to Peter's hard command. How do we submit to unjust masters? How do we return evil with good? Jesus is the one who shows us the way. Jesus and his gospel are central to this. These verses put two incredibly important categories before us: important categories for understanding how to live in light of First Peter, and important categories for understanding how to live as a Christian in life generally. Two categories: Christ our example and Christ our substitute. Christ our example and Christ our substitute. I'd like to spend uh, just a moment looking at these two things. Start with Christ our example. What does it look like to be a slave? What does it look like to submit to unjust masters with all respect? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us the way. Peter draws on Isaiah 53, which prophesies the suffering servant. I think that language is intentional here. Jesus is the one who went before us as a servant. He is the suffering servant. And so uh, Isaiah describes Jesus' example. Jesus was without sin, No deceit was found in his mouth. He was reviled and he didn't return. He suffered and he didn't threaten. We see the truth of Peter's statement here in Isaiah's prophecy lived out in the gospels. Even in passages or books like Mark, which we just uh, studied as a church. What do the gospels show us about Jesus? That he was betrayed by his friends, including by the man who's writing this book now. Jesus was slandered by his countrymen. Jesus was betrayed and beaten. Jesus was spit upon. Insults were hurled at him. He was scourged. He was humiliated. He was hung upon a cross where he died. And how did Jesus respond in all of this? He didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. He trusted him who judges justly. How in the world do we, like slaves, submit in all respect to unjust rulers? How do we return evil with good? We look to Jesus. We follow in his steps. What did Jesus do? He trusted his father, He trusted his father. He believed in the goodness of God. He believed in the faithfulness of God, the justice of God. And so all of the injustice that he was experiencing, he entrusted that to the Lord who will one day deal with all of this. He leaned into God the father. The reality is is that every instance of evil committed against us, it is seen and it is recorded. One day, every one of these sins will be dealt with. There will be vindication. These sins will be dealt with at the cross or in eternal torment away from the presence of God. Every single one of them. Jesus was our illustration. Jesus was our example. Jesus was our forerunner. The very important implication in this is that we must look to Jesus. And if we are not looking to Jesus, then we will be left rudderless. We will be left adrift in an open sea. We must look to Christ. If we want to obey, if we want to live in light of Peter's commands, then we must look to Christ. Jesus is our example. But he is not simply our example. He is our substitute. If we look at verse 21, we see a very important word. The word for. Jesus suffered not simply as an example, not just simply, but he suffered for you. He suffered for you. Verse 24 uh, picks this up. Jesus bore our sins in his body. By his wounds, we have been healed. In these verses, Jesus not only goes before us, but he stands in our place. The scary reality is that every way Christ succeeds in these verses, we have failed. Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is not true of you and me. We have sinned. There is deceit in our mouth. Christ did not revile or return suffering for suffering. Not true of us. We have returned evil with evil. More than that, we have been the one who has treated others unjustly. But God, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, has pursued us in Christ. He was not content to let us continue in our sinful and evil ways which separate us from creator. So Christ died. He became our substitute. He stood in our place that we might live. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The iniquity of us was laid upon him. He was pierced for our transgressions. Christ stood in our place. Jesus is our substitute. And notice the consequences. Notice the result of this. Verse 24, Christ bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ not only saved us from something, but he saved us to something. He saved us to himself and he saved us to be like him in enduring unjust suffering. In all of this we see the centrality of the gospel. How do we stand? Because Christ stood in our place. How do we live by following Christ's faithful example? The only way Peter's commandment can be obeyed is because of Christ. Many have succinctly stated in the past that in the gospel Jesus frees us from the power and the penalty of sin. On the cross, Christ bore the penalty of sin in our place. We don't have to deal with the penalty of our sin, death, separation from God. Christ took that penalty. At the very same time, because Christ went before us, because he bled and died, the bonds of slavery that once shackled us so tightly have been torn away. We can obey, we can live out this command. The gospel enables us to live to Christ. That's what this passage is all about. That's what we're being encouraged towards, commanded towards today, to being empowered by the gospel. We are to be a people who shun the way of the world and we are to submit to unjust masters. We are to return evil with good. In doing this, we image Christ. In doing this, we please the Father. In doing this, we are living out our calling as Christians. That's what Peter's telling us this morning. And so I hope the application is clear to you. Be subject. It's a hard command, but be subject. Even though this is the key application here, I, I do want to, before we close, just point out a few things that I think are really important for us to wrestle with, implications of this text. And so we'll close just by noticing a few things. What does this mean for us practically? First, an implication of this is that we be good friends we be good friends. If we are really called to subject ourselves to unjust masters, if this is really our holy vocation and this pleases God, then this has practical implications for how we live our lives. So often, brothers and sisters will come to us and they will tell us of a difficult situation within their marriage, uh, at work, within a friend group. And so often, we can be so quick to respond with a sort of counseling that is just simply unhelpful and unbiblical. Rather than encourage them to Christ, encourage them to live out what's being said here in 1 Peter, we'll just slap them on the back and tell them that those people are terrible and that they should rage against them or they should act subversively. In light of Peter's words, though, I think we need to be better counselor givers. What would it look like for us to respond to these sorts of laments with deep sorrow, weeping with those who weep, recognizing the real sorrowful situation? But not leaving it there, not turning to subversive language, but then by uh, helping our friends to see this as a holy opportunity. This is an opportunity to bless the Lord, to worship. This is an opportunity to lean into our calling as Christ followers. This is an opportunity to rest in the finished work of Christ. This is an opportunity to preach the gospel and potentially uh, Have new people receive Christ and enter into the kingdom of God. Let us recognize the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Let us live for the fame of the father, for the pleasure of the father. Let us not be content to just live as the world lives. May we be better counselor givers. Also, let us wrestle well within community. Wrestle well within community. This passage is a tricky passage Because Peter doesn't offer qualifications. He doesn't say that you should submit to unjust masters if and only if this is what you're going through. But these situations, you're good. You don't have to do that. And that could be tough because many of us might hear this passage and immediately objections come screaming to the forefront. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm dealing with and this is what you bring me? That could be difficult, and, and you're right. I don't understand what you are going through. However, I think it is intentional that Peter, by the Spirit, does not include qualifications here. And that's not because there, there aren't helpful qualifications that need to be given at times, but because I think we tend to be a people who need not have this qualified, but rather we need to submit ourselves to the Lord's will in this. The majority of us, maybe not all of us, the majority of us have a hard time with this, and we need to be obedient. We need to allow this to confront us in a serious way. Nevertheless, if we read this in light of all of scripture, we can recognize that more needs to be said. More needs to be said. For instance, 1 Corinthians tells tells slaves that if the opportunity to avail themselves of their freedom presents itself, then to take it. That's a good thing. That pleases the Lord. And so... What I think we need to do here is to wrestle within the context of community, to apply this passage, not in a vacuum, not on our own, but we need to go to friends, brothers, and sisters, grace groups, and wrestle uh, seeking the Lord, seeking to to wrestle deep in the Word, uh, to be wise biblically, and apply this. We need to wrestle within the community. Third, we need not oppress. Do not oppress. Peter doesn't tell us to abolish slavery in this passage, nor does he deal explicitly with how we are to deal with societal injustice. But I think we can clearly see the heart of God in all of this. Christians are those who suffer for doing good. They are those who return evil with good and entrust themselves to their faithful creator who judges justly. Therefore, to actually be the oppressor is unthinkable. This is so far away from being keeping with God's character. Peter doesn't even deal with the idea that we might be the oppressors or the ones who are extending evil in the first place. If you are the bully this morning, if you are the oppressor, the unjust boss or master, then allow God's word to pierce you this morning. Be convicted of your sin and run to Christ. Repent of your sin. Let it not be said of us that we are the unjust masters in this passage. Recognize how far out of character that is with the, with the character, how far off base that is with the character of God. Do not oppress. Last, look to Jesus. We've said this before, look to Jesus. The only way that any of us will stand is by looking to Christ, beholding Christ. That is our only hope. He is the one who delivers us from the power and the penalty of sin. Go to him, hide in him, look to him and live let's pray father we praise your holy name we thank you for being a good and gracious god even when your word is hard even when it is difficult lord i pray that by your spirit you would be uniquely applying this to every one of us this morning that you would help us to understand what it is you have called us to that you have given us a holy calling lord And so, Father, would you, in light of the gospel, compel us to live for your glory, your fame, your smile? Help us, Lord, we need you. So, Lord, um, in light of this passage this morning, in light of who you are, we ask that you would go with us by your spirit and that you would um, more and more draw our eyes, our gaze to Christ this day, this week. Help us, Lord. We offer you this morning as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.